If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg and friends. Today's episode is going to be with Carrie Strauss, and we are going to have a conversation about running a high-profile organization in a relatively small community. Let me also just set the table for this, because part of our conversation is actually going to be about running a high-profile organization in a small geographically and population-wise small community. But even if you're in a big metro area somewhere, so often the communities that we serve feel like small communities. I know when I was running the LGBT Center in Philadelphia, I certainly felt that way where, you know, while the LGBTQ plus community was fairly large in Philadelphia, the number of people very actively involved in it was probably in the hundreds, maybe thousand or so people when I was there. And so consequently, I was working in a fairly high-profile position in a relatively small community. So whether you're in a big city or a small town or something in between, this is going to be a great episode for you. Because let's face it, being the chief executive is a fishbowl effect to begin with. Everyone on your staff is looking at you, all of your volunteers, all of your board members. You are in a fishbowl. And when you are serving a community that's even smaller, wow, that fishbowl, you know how you can look at a curved fishbowl and it magnifies, now you're in a curved fishbowl and it's magnified. Every single thing you do gets magnified. And that's why when I first encountered Carrie Strauss, I thought, oh my gosh, we have got to have Carrie on the podcast. So before I share a little bit about Carrie with you, I just also want to share with you how we met. So Carrie responded to a question that I asked in our monthly email newsletter. And I know I say this on the podcast a good little bit, but when someone hits reply, it really does come into my email box. And admittedly, and Carrie probably could testify to this, it might take me a few days to respond because those replies are often not the most urgent thing I need to think about that day. But I'll share with you, I always respond when someone hits reply. And oftentimes, before I respond, and this is why it takes me some time, I'll go, you know, if the person is in an organization, I'll check out their website, I'll read their LinkedIn. And from the moment I started to just do that simple five or 10 minute research on Carrie, I knew 
that after I responded, we were going to have to try to get her as a guest on this podcast. So Carrie is proof that social workers change the world. And I said this before on the podcast, and I will always say this. Social workers are agents of change and agents of change for good. She was the executive director of the United Way of Bradford County in Towanda, Pennsylvania, which, by the way, I also got that wrong. That's in northeast Pennsylvania, I think about four or five hours north of Philadelphia. And Carrie and I have a lot in common. We are both former executive directors with consulting practices. We both focus a good little bit of our time on interim engagements, executive coaching, and training. And I'm also really intrigued because Carrie, and by the way, this I also think is proof that social workers change the world, Carrie offers in-person trainings in Towanda, Pennsylvania. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is a, a, a force of nature to actually be able in a relatively smaller community be able to offer in-person trainings for nonprofit professionals. That's someone who can make things happen, and we need Carrie on the podcast. Hey, Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dolph. Of course, of course. And I, I thought a good place for us to start would be talking about an impact secret that you have that works even in small communities. Wonderful. Yes, an impact secret that I would like to share is a regional leader approach. And I think this is really a part of very rural nonprofit that can implement or also, as you mentioned, an urban nonprofit that also perhaps covers a rural area or has that rural feel to it. So United Way of Bradford County, they serve the second largest county in Pennsylvania by land area. And that comes in at 1,200 square miles. So I'm, I'm really speaking on behalf of a very rural nonprofit. But as I said, I think this can be implemented from an urban nonprofit that covers a rural area. And so the logistics behind that of having a rural, you know, large area that is trying to be covered logistically can become a very big challenge for any one person. And when I was the executive director of United Way of Bradford County, I was that one employee that was trying to cover a large area. So as you can imagine, I relied very heavily on volunteers and having a, a volunteer chair. And we had 28 members on the board at the time. In large part, they represented the various regions of this very rural area. And so the, the secret was kind of this regional leader approach. And for us, that was structured by school districts. We had five active school districts that then represented those five regions where a United Way regional leader would be in charge of that territory. And they were the ones to really help year round with the campaign and special events, making those personal connections with donors and all the partners, you know, radio stations, newspapers, and schools to help get youth involved as well. And so I think that the saying of six degrees of separation comes into play here because in rural areas, it's really more like two degrees of separation. And the fact that, you know, these are the people who are living in these areas, that's their friends, their family that they're directly working with. And so having this regional leader approach, I think can really help an organization to expand out into those more rural areas and really make the personal connections to enhance the organization. Very, very cool. And, and I know you just kind of said that at like the 50,000 foot level, and I'd like for us to dive down to maybe the 10,000 foot level. So you talk about these regional leaders. How do you um, identify, recruit, and then onboard those regional leaders? Well, the key there is to start small. So when we first started this, we had only one leader in one area, and then it moved to two leaders covering the one area. And the area that we started with 
was the area that was the most underrepresented for our organization. So for us, that was the western part of our county that was more rural than the rest of the county. And so to highlight an underrepresented area, make sure that that area had a voice and had people that were representing the donors and the volunteers and the organizations, the agencies, the impact, you know, and and to bring the organization fully into that area Uh, my suggestion would be to start with the underrepresented area and then to expand it out, you know, to include all corners of your territory that's being covered. And so, yes, relying heavily on committees and volunteers to be able to do this active work, because again, no one person can do it alone. And when you have more people involved, you're expanding through their network as well. And did you have, I mean, ignorant question on my part, did you have a job description when you were actually talking to someone to say, hey, we'd like for you to be a regional leader? What did that conversation look like and how did you make sure they understood what you needed? Yes, that's a great question. And we did have a job description. I'm a firm believer in organizations having job descriptions for their board members. A lot don't or they have them and don't follow them. But I think it is important to have job descriptions and to annually evaluate board members, just as you would any other volunteer or staff member. And we did the same thing for the regional leaders. We even had an organizational chart that included the regional leaders and that they reported to the campaign chair, who was our vice president on the board. And so we did have a structure in place and it highlighted specifically what their expectations were. And so that way they felt supported throughout their role. And it was also, it was really considered to be a really prestigious volunteer role in the organization. And I think that using the term leader was really important because it was empowering to the people who served in that role as well, that they truly were the the organization's leader of that area. And I think that, you know, that really helped the organization and it helped the people in those areas as well. And also, of course, made the volunteers feel supported as they were helping as a regional leader. So, I am super curious when you say that these regional leaders reported to the board member who was the campaign chair, what did that reporting actually, like, what was that reporting? So was it one-on-one meetings? Was it group meetings? Was it just emails? Like, what was that reporting structure? Well, it was a combination of things. It was quarterly throughout the year, but during the fall is the height of the United Way campaign season. And so when fall time hit, those reports became weekly. And so that was a weekly touch base, either in person or via email, to kind of take pulse on each region. And so those regional leaders would report to the campaign chair where they were at in terms of of fundraising and outreach, you know, ensuring that annual reports and thank you letters are being shared. And so it really tied in a lot of marketing and outreach. And it was definitely done on a weekly basis in the fall and then quarterly throughout the year. And how did you do it in ways where your regional leaders did not just feel like they were, I hate to sound this way, but a tool of fundraising and actual leaders involved in making decisions? Right. So their input was really valuable because they were the ones who had their finger on the pulse for those regions. And so they were the ones to be able to say, these are the people that we should be engaging with. These are the the donors or the students at high schools that we should be reaching out to, to be able to partner with for the next generation of leaders. And so seeking their input and having that at such a high value that it really was important made it a lot more than just a, a typical volunteer, as you said, or as a fundraising agent. It was really a lot more than just fundraising. It was really the the main connection between the organization as a whole and these various regions. And so it really became a quite a prestigious, I guess, connection piece for that. 
I will say, I do think that's such a critical impact secret that you shared. And I think whether someone's in a, a large metro or rural area or somewhere in between, that concept of let's identify leaders who are not on the board and find ways, meaningful ways for them to engage and represent various voices is so important. So thank you for sharing that. I would love for us to pivot and also have the conversation about what it's like to actually run a high-profile organization. And this is true probably whether you're in a small community or a large community. But I would imagine at a United Way, that is a broad community-based organization where most people look at United Way and say, even if comparison to other United Ways, you know, your budget's not that large. Oh my gosh, you all have the, one of the biggest budgets in the region and we expect you to solve all problems for all people. What are you going to do about it? Right. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of organizations to um, and in a, a rural area, perhaps those logistics are even heightened more. I'm, you know, a firm believer in really evaluating the effective use of time. And so optimizing things like commute time become really important in rural areas. So for example, I would have a Western Bradford County day where I would spend the day, would take over an hour to drive to the Western part of the county. And that would be an optimized, well-planned day where there would be visits to donors, companies, any new leaders perhaps in that area to visit with the school, if there was an event that was taking place, or just to touch base with other nonprofits. And so I would schedule those well out in advance so that I could really optimize that amount of time that would be spent in an area that was farther away. And so again, this, this coordination of being a part of a larger team, using the, the regional leaders and volunteers becomes really key to success, but then also other partners. And I think speaking partnerships with the local chambers and other business leaders really becomes instrumental to helping an organization so that all areas are represented and to make sure that you're not forgetting about, you know, media partners and newspapers and utilizing all the tools that are available to cover not just the area that the nonprofit's based out of, but the areas that they cover. Got it. And so when you're doing that Western Bradford County Day, and let's say you're visiting a CEO or you're visiting a regional leader who, you know, has raised lots and lots of money, and they want to have that conversation with you and, and tell you, you know, I'm really concerned that United Way is not doing X, Y, or Z. And in your head, you think, mm, that's not one of our strategic priorities. How do you have that conversation? Well, I think it is important to be honest and have those conversations that if it doesn't fall within the priorities of the United Way, that perhaps there is another organization that it does become well aligned to fall within the priorities of. And so making those connections, there's usually an answer to any problem. It's just a matter of which organization or, or group may be the one who's able to tackle that problem. And so I think that's another strength of the United Way is that if they're not the ones directly to provide the answers, that they often know of other resources, other organizations that may be the ones to provide those answers. And I can picture some of our friends who are listening right now thinking, well, if I'm referring my large contributors or my large fundraisers or even just key stakeholders to other organizations, they are less likely to work with mine. But I'm guessing that you did not find that to be the case at United Way. Correct. I've definitely found that collaboration has been the key to success. And perhaps it's even more evident in rural areas, but you know, you have to seek those partners and you have to look to have that community support. It creates trust and through those partnerships and to not be afraid of protecting your own territory, so to speak, that if if the organization is really acting in terms that's going to benefit the community, I think that donors and other partners recognize that as well, and they'll actually be more likely 
to trust the organization and to partner with them. So, yeah, I, I think that it doesn't have to be the organization that always feels that it has the answers, that instead it should be the one to recognize this is outside of our realm of what we're able to do, but we can point you in the right direction. And I think the more the collaboration takes place and the more that the community is put as the primary focus, then people recognize that and they see the importance and the credibility to that organization. Thank you. And and what are some of the other challenges that you experienced really, again, running a high profile organization in, in a relatively small community? Well, I think another challenge, and this can be a part of any organization, but is to truly listen and hear the needs of the community and to understand where the priorities should be. And so something as simple as like a listening tour, when somebody's a new CEO, I encourage them to do this where they're really talking with all the key stakeholders and not just the the main board of directors of an organization, but where they're hearing from people that represent all the entities of the organization and the regions. And so I, I think that, you know, really becoming more of a listener and taking that time at first to listen to what the community needs and what others are saying, rather than making some assumptions and, and saying, well, this is what we're going to do and moving right to the implementation and action, that that'll come down the road. Can we stop and unpack that listening tour? Sure, definitely. Love it. In a county like Bradford County, what would that listening tour look like? How many stops? How many people? And, and then, of course, let's also have some conversation about how you structure it and you know how you make sure you get you get people there who really need to be listened to. Right. So I think it's important to make sure that, like I said, all of your key stakeholders are being represented. And so an easy way to structure that, and for Bradford County, it was the five regions, again, that serve the various corners of the county to make sure that everybody is heard. And so the listening tour was conducted in five areas, and it was throughout the whole year. It did take a year long for the process. And that included visits with donors and companies that are current supporters and also companies that could be new supporters to the United Way, as well as volunteers, the schools, as I've mentioned, and other leaders in those areas. And so, for example, our listening tour even included conversations with the Community Foundation because they also covered the same footprint as the United Way. And so taking in that feedback from various organizations and key stakeholders and from all the represented areas of the organization was really a way for the organization to listen to the community. And then the second step to that was to actually follow up with the community assessment. And I thought that it was really helpful to have the listening tour first before the community assessment took place. And that way the assessment could essentially be formulated using questions and concerns that came out of the listening tour. And then the final piece to that is then putting into place some action items and implementing all the ideas that came out of the listening tour and the assessment so that the organization could then be responsive to the community and move forward in a very impactful way. And tell me more about that assessment. Well, the assessment, um, we actually partnered with a local university, their master's of social work department, and the assessment had some third-party facilitation, you know, roundtable discussions, again, in each of those regions, and then included a, a survey that canvassed our entire county to be able to provide feedback on social services and on the United Way and, and where the needs were to then help the organization prioritize where the dollars could be the most impactful. And that that assessment is done every three years. And so as you can imagine, this process is kind of 
constantly in the works. So between the by the time the listening tour is wrapping up, then the community assessment is taking place. And then the following year, the priorities of the strategic plan and it, of course, is an ongoing process. So it's constantly being evaluated, which is great because the needs of the community are constantly being evaluated. You know, the three to five year ago plan is not what's currently taking place today. And I feel pretty confident that under your leadership, it's not, okay, let's do an assessment. Let's create some strategic priorities and a plan for how we're going to achieve those strategic priorities, but then let's not tell anyone about it. So what does the communication piece look like? Right. So this is where it kind of feels like it goes in a cyclical matter. So once you have the results, once you have your assessment, once you're ready to share and make some action, you again go back to the board and the regional leaders and you make sure that the information is getting out to the community. And so having an item and, and a small nonprofit, I think a lot of people can understand that the resources are limited. But having something like an annual report, we always still produce hard copy annual reports. I know that a lot of organizations have moved to just sharing online, but having something in your hand that you're able to share as a thank you to your donors and to your partners and including perhaps a handwritten thank you letter also can be really impactful. So whether that is mailed or handed in person, having the annual report and the plan for moving forward, I think it's really beneficial to have. And so, yes, it's an ongoing process that once, as you said, once some information is ready to be shared, that you go back to your regional leaders, your team members, the people that are the boots on the ground and have the direct connections in the community that they're sharing it. Because again, if one person was trying to do this, they can only cover so much area and, and interact with so many people. But if you're multiplying that times five or 10, now the area that you're covering and people you're interacting with directly is, is impacted tenfold. I love that. And I'll share with you one of the ways I've really tried to use annual reports, especially when I'm doing interims, is to actually call some of those key stakeholders up and say, hey, I'm going to mail this to you. And I'd love to schedule a time for us to talk about it. And so literally, like before I even mail it to them, I schedule a time to talk about it. But the other reason is it also helps me explain to them why I'm going to send it by two-day priority mail. And so, so I say, you know, the postal service is not as reliable as it used to be. So I just want you to know we're going to spend the $7.60 it costs to, to two-day mail this to you. And it's just because we want to make sure that you get it before the conversation. You know, we don't want you to feel like we're spending a ton of money on postage. And if you're only doing with that with like 50 or 100 people, you're not talking that much money. You're talking, you know, $500 to $1,000 in postage. But I, I know in my experience, when I two-day mail something to a person, it stands out. It's the thing that gets opened and gets read, even though I didn't really spend that much money to send it to them. That's great. And I think, too, including that thank you letter with it. And that's a even if it's a typed, you know, standard thank you letter that it has a component to it that has a handwritten thank you as well. And like you said, that follow up of the personal outreach of I want to have a conversation with you, that all adds value and goes really far in terms of donors understanding that you really do care about them and their input in the organization. And do you ever flag pages in the annual report along with that thank you letter? Like you put a post-it note on a page like, you know, wow, you know, you were really super important in achieving this goal. Thanks. Thanks, Carrie. Right. <laughs> I've definitely done that. It's so true. And I, I do think that that's an important highlight. A lot of organizations take the time and spend the money to do the annual report. And then they they don't spend as much time highlighting and thanking everybody that's in it. And so I've, I've definitely gone through the entire annual report and put sticky notes on to make sure that every area that is highlighted 
you know, and every partner and donor sees that they're included in that annual report and that it's, again, another way to thank them, but also to bring more value to the organization and to make sure that that is being shared. You can't just assume that they've seen it on their own. You know, and, and part of what I find so impactful about that is so often organizations really kind of treat their annual report like an annual brochure. And gosh, you can use it in such better ways to say thank you and to engage. Correct. That's exactly. I 100% agree with that. The other thing you mentioned that I want us to spend just a few more minutes on before we pivot to an off-the-map question. The other thing I want us to spend a few more minutes on is you talked about, okay, every three years you do the assessment and every three years you would essentially produce a new, kind of a new strategic plan. And first of all, kudos to you because I can't, I really have a hard time believing organizations still create five-year strategic plans. Unless they're like building a building, I'm like, wow, you know, I I don't know what the future is going to look like for five years. (laughs) Neither does anybody else. But I also often find that organizations will spend a lot of time and resources to create a great strategic plan and then the board approves it and the next day the staff leadership senior leadership team shows up back at the office and they have the same pile of emails and they have the same various fires that are cropping up every day and a year later they've not made significant progress so in your leadership at united way what were some of the things that you did to ensure that your organization did make progress toward those plans well one of the steps that we were able to easily take to kind of implement that was in terms of the annual allocations. And so the traditional United Way campaign does take place in the fall, although it's been moving to more of a year-round fundraising. But in the springtime is typically when United Ways across the country allocate funds. And again, some of that process is changing because of the campaign structure becoming year-round. But for United Way of Bradford County, we were still implementing the, the springtime allocation process. And so during allocations, which had weekly meetings with the allocation committee reviewing grants, that was really when the strategic plan could be put into place by prioritizing where the areas of need were in the community. And so having that community assessment to have the fresh data as to where the priorities are really helped to implement every year, you know, where the funds were going to be invested in order to make the most impact. Got it. And and did your plan ever include organizational items like, oh, we need to strengthen our infrastructure here, which might which might move beyond just, okay, the allocation spring time period or, oh, you know, we we really need to invest in our campaign in the following ways. And, And how did you make sure those things got achieved? Right. So there was always an evaluation that was going on to, like you said, for those areas. A a good example of that was during COVID times, there was really a need to kind of leverage this uh, small organizations to partner together. And so having the need early on to make sure that all of our smaller nonprofits within Bradford County were able to still operate, they really needed to have just basic things like masks available. And so we were able to partner together to secure a mass order of masks during the pandemic. And so I think that's a way that a larger organization or even small organizations can partner together to create that leverage to make sure that they're, you know, maximizing that impact. And that's that's outside of traditional structure, but something that comes up as an immediate need during something like a pandemic. And and I, I love that. And are you using, I know you're saying evaluation, but but are you using a dashboard? Are you just using like a, like tools that you kind of keep track of every month? How are you doing that evaluation? Yes, dashboards for sure. I'm a, I'm a, a firm believer in using dashboards. And so, yes, that that's the way that that was implemented. And again, that you have this 
ability to make sure that you're constantly evaluating it and making the changes where appropriate, but still looking at that larger picture too of the three-year plan. And so I think it's important for organizations to have the plan written down, but to be willing to adjust and adapt when needed. Got it. I get that 100%. Now, Carrie, we have covered a lot of ground, and now I'd like for us to switch gears with a fun off-the-map question. And in this case, it actually involves a different type of map, a trail map. So I understand that you have hiked the Appalachian Trail from New Jersey to Maryland, and I would love to hear more. Well, yes, I did. And it was a very unique trip. Uh, It actually took place over two and a half years. And the reason for that is because um, most people, I guess, when they think of hiking the Appalachian Trail, they think of it as a through hike where you start and end at one place. Um, But I did it as a section hiker. And so hiking it in portions anywhere from possibly four miles in one day up to the longest day being 25 miles. And I did not do it alone. I have two teenage boys. And so my oldest son and I did the bulk of it together. My youngest also did quite a few of the stretches. And so we started at the Delaware Water Gap, the Pennsylvania, New Jersey border. And that first day or two was, you know, essentially in a weekend several years ago and then um, ended at the Mason-Dixon line. And as I said, it took two and a half years and some of it was done in four or five day stretches and others were done only with you know a, a day that might be available here and there and so it was a really unique way to hike and to to be able to do all 230 miles of the pennsylvania appalachian trail but uh, to share that experience with my kids was also really enjoyable because you know a lot of people are on their phones and things like that that we get so distracted and when you're out in a rural area like the middle of nowhere, you know, not to say that you couldn't turn on your phone if you had an emergency, but to be disconnected and just really be in touch in present and having wonderful conversations and talking about all kinds of crazy things because you're out in the middle of the wilderness and seeing wildlife and just enjoying being in the present. It was a really, really wonderful journey and something that I'll always cherish having that time. You know, Carrie, that's one of the things I've always loved about about overnight backpacking and trekking is that that sense of even when your phone does have connectivity, that sense of like, you know, I'm I'm far away from the world and I just I don't need to take I don't need to respond to my phone. I don't need to interact with my phone. And I've always, always loved that. And what an amazing experience you've you've given to your to your two sons. Yes, I think I think they enjoyed it as well. I think, you know, we certainly had a lot of great adventures. And as you know, anytime you embark on on an adventure like that, things don't always go as planned. And so it's wonderful just to have to to have that again, the, the teaching those lessons, I guess, and and seeing for yourself that you can have a plan and then adjust and adapt where needed. And that along the way, when things don't go as planned, those are sometimes the the funniest stories and the most memorable. And so yeah, I, I will always cherish that I've had that opportunity to do that with my my kids. And so I'm also curious, do you want to do more sections of the Appalachian Trail? Or you're like, okay, I've done Pennsylvania. That was my goal. And, and I'm going to move on to other things. Yes, definitely. There's some plans to do some other states. And I think I've even sparked in them um, perhaps some plans for them to to take on some themselves as they get older that they may want to take on an adventure, um, perhaps just as the two brothers. And maybe in the future that we would even as a, a family or my husband and I have talked about doing the entire Appalachian Trail, perhaps when we're retired. So, yes, there's definitely anybody who's been on the Appalachian Trail, they they know the allure to it or any type of long through hike. You know, it's it's really a fascinating 
a piece where it's it's not just the adventure that you're doing, but the trail that kind of moves you and that you you have this amazing experience. And there's definitely some more adventure in there where we're interested in doing some more down the road. Mm, that is super cool. Carrie, thank you so much. And thank you for coming on and, and sharing some really incredible information with our friends who are listening about how to how to really run that high profile organization in the small community, how to build leadership infrastructure as well, you know, quite frankly, how to how to be an effective leader yourself in a world where everybody's looking at you. Right. Thank you so much, Dolph. I appreciate you having me on. All right, friends, let me make sure that you have more information about Carrie. So you can go to CarrieStraussConsulting.com and at that website, you will find information on workshops, other services um, that she offers, things like mentorship, interim leadership, articles, and more. And I also have to say, I'm really intrigued by these in-person trainings and I might actually stop by one. I, I'm planning to spend about a week or so in uh, in Philadelphia, and I might actually go. You know, I, I'm going to do an overnight and and head over to Northeast Pennsylvania and head head over to Tawanda and just check out her in person trainings as well. Additionally, and this is one of the things I really like about Carrie. Carrie said, "Doff, there, there's one other URL I want you to promote, and this is this is not a URL that that really like." supports Carrie and her consulting practice or anything like that, but she wants people to know about it. And I did not know about this organization. It is called United Way Next. And it is kind of like the United Way Retiree Association, but it's inclusive of people who are not retired. So it could be anyone who has ever worked at a United Way, that is whether they are currently working there or used to work there. And it really helps those United Way alum and current staff, think about what comes next for us. They've recently rebranded. And again, I just have to say, make sure you check them out at unitedwaynext.org. And if you're an association, perhaps you should think about creating your own next.org for those people who've come through as professionals and leaders within your association. And finally, listeners, you know, I always, always, always ask you to do this. If you are loving this podcast, don't be shy and hit that subscribe button. Then help us spread the word by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform or giving us a shout out on social media. Additionally, if you have found this episode to be one that has brought you information and you're like, I'd like more, I'd like more along these lines. Well, there's two episodes we want you to consider. The first is episode 203, The Secret to Resiliency with Carrie Rosebeck. And the second is episode 189, Coalition Building Can Help Your Nonprofit and Your Cause with Jim Neal and Padia Mixon. All right, my friends, that is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I do this at the end of every one. And, you know, I always say I really don't like doing it, but I am required to do it by the lawyers. So I am actually so tired of doing this that I went to chat GPT and asked them for some better ways I could do this disclaimer. So here is the disclaimer in the style of Dr. Seuss. Just a moment. You're going to hear me get my paper out and you're going to hear me rustle it a little bit. Okay. I am not an accountant or attorney and tax advice is not my journey. This podcast is for your delight, but for legal or tax advice, take flight. Don't rely on me for that legal need. Go find a pro with the know-how speed. I'm just here to have some fun, so seek out a lawyer accountant and you'll have one. Remember, folks, it's important to know that my podcast is not to bestow. 
tax, or legal advice upon you. So please, whatever you do, I hope this disclaimer has been clear and you'll go find a pro either far or near for the best advice and counsel you seek so your financial future stays rosy and sleek.